This passage, as I've been reading it this week, in light of things happening in the world, have made me think about what it must be like to sit and wonder and fear and be filled with anxiety and knowing that there are people preparing for your destruction to attack and to annihilate. This was exactly the situation in which the Jews in Persia found themselves in the book of Esther. They knew that the day of the, the 13th day of the 12th month was coming, the month of Adar, and then that was the day in which Haman's edict, signed and sealed by the king himself, gave the right of everyone in all of Persia to attack them, to kill, annihilate, and destroy, and to take plunder from their homes and keep it, although they had to pay taxes in order to make the whole thing worthwhile for Haman and the king. But then, of course, there was another edict. And that one is what is in view here when we read about the king's edict in verse 1. This is the one that King Ahasuerus had intended. He was bamboozled because he was easily confused and fooled uh, with that first edict. But this one, when he learned that it was his wife's people who would be annihilated, and that it was his right-hand man, his prime minister, who had obfuscated facts and tricked him, this is the one that was supposed to set things right. And as we see in verse 1, it did set things right. It begins with kind of an overarching statement describing the whole event. In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This also calls to mind uh, events in the late 1960s. In June of 1967, when Israel, the modern state of Israel, was being surrounded by a buildup of armies and weapons and nations intent on destroying them and wiping them off the face of the earth or pushing them into the sea. And as these nations, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria among them, determined that they were going to annihilate Israel, the result was what we now call the Six-Day War. In less than one week, Israel turned the tables. The reverse happened. They crippled the entire military of all three of these nations, almost completely destroyed the Egyptian Air Force. They were not destroyed themselves. They were not pushed into the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, as the opposite happened, they expanded, taking control of Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip and uh, the West Bank and the entire Sinai Peninsula. A lot of that has turned into more trouble than perhaps it was worth. But at the moment, it seemed like just such a great Victory, And I think it's hard for me, having been born after those events, to even get my mind around how shocking this must have been. Because I think of, you know, you think of Israel, you think like Mossad agents and fighter jets and stuff. But it was a fledgling new nation. This is how Life magazine reported those events way back in June, June 16 of 1967. Astounding was the only word for it. In 60 hours, the war that exploded upon the Middle East became a fact of history. Tiny Israel stood in the role of victor over the surrounding Arab nations that had vowed to exterminate her. Middle Eastern alliances, balances of power, even political boundaries were of a new shape, as though mutated by a biblical cataclysm. Seldom in military history has victory been so efficient or so visibly decisive in so short a span of time. So swiftly did Israel mount her assault that her adversaries were deprived of the means of winning almost before the world awakened to the fact that a war was in progress. The Israelis experienced an ecstasy which is given to few people of any generation to know. 
Now, I'm certainly not equating the modern political state of Israel with the Israel of the Old Testament, but I think we can't deny that this seems to rehearse and, and revisit a common theme throughout the Old Testament. That this seems to be a recurring theme in, in all of Scripture that God's people, when they are almost destroyed, are rescued. And not only do they escape like a rescue that grabs you and sneaks you out in the midst of the night, but there is a reversal. This is the word that we've continually used, especially in the second half of the book of Esther. Ironic reversals, iconic reversals, things like Haman being put to death on his own gallows. It is a way in which a book that does not name the name of God anywhere shows the ever presence of God and his sovereign will and his mighty work amongst his people. Of course, the background here is very unique, an odd situation in which there are two conflicting edicts. The reason for this, of course, is that we're told the law of the Medes and Persians is permanent. Once an edict is sealed with the king's ring, it can't be undone, it can't be modified, it can't be reopened for discussion. It is permanent. We saw that in the book of Daniel as a conundrum. We see it here as a conundrum, and in both cases, the solution is do another edict that sort of overturns it. But both are still in force. So you, what a weird day, the 13th of Adar on this year, when people can be openly fighting in the cities and everyone has the law on their side. Both sides can say, no, no, I'm, I'm following the words of the king and the decree of the, the empire of Persia. The law of the Medes and the Persians allows me to do exactly what I am doing. Last week, we saw this great celebration going on amongst all the Jews in all of Persia when they learned that the new edict had been sent out to all corners of the land, that they would be permitted to gather together, prepare militarily, and defend themselves. They celebrated, they partied, they were ecstatic, and yet there is still, we see here, much to do. They still have to fight for it if they're going to survive. Our passage begins and ends, verse 1 and 10, with references to the enemies of the Jews. And those are the ones who are going to come in and try to destroy them. Their leader, Haman, may be dead, but they still persist. In fact, the narrator calls Haman the enemy of the Jews in this text, and he has four other times. He says it as if it were the official job title or position that he occupied. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. He's dead, but now we have reference in his place to, quote, all who hate God's people. Persia was a rather multicultural place as a result of the empire building and the way that they operated. It was a rather open and tolerant place compared with, say, the Assyrian Empire. And yet, somehow, all the same, there seem to be many, many people who hate the Jewish people, particularly in Persia. They come out of the woodwork at the mere suggestion that they might be able to put them to death and plunder them. This melting pot has one exception. It makes me wonder why. And I think the answer is that in this old covenant world, these are the people of the one true God. And there are forces at work beyond simple human prejudice, beyond simple greed and wanting to grab something for oneself, in which the enemy is working against God's people. I often think today, why is it that when someone wants to swear, they don't take the name of Muhammad or Buddha or 
L. Ron Hubbard, in vain. If it's going to be a religious thing, it's always going to be Jesus Christ. And I think it's telling that people can say Jesus Christ as if it were a four-letter curse word left and right and almost no one raises an eyebrow. I'll admit, I don't even sometimes get overly shocked if I'm watching television and hear it. I become kind of desensitized to it, which is insanely sad. But in any setting, if someone were to take a different religion's sacred name, not only in vain, but blasphemously, as a, a mockery, there would be an uproar. It would be on the news. And we have to, again, wonder, why is it that Jesus himself is the only one that is fair game? It's open season on Jesus, like it had been open season on God's people here. And I think, again, it's because there is something bigger at work than simply human desire and human prejudice. There are many different Hamans, there are many different groups, there are many different things going on, but there is one overarching design by the enemy to drag the name of Jesus, to drag the name of Yahweh and his people through the mud. Even in the very citadel of Susa, we're told there were 500 men ready to attack the Jews to annihilate and plunder them. Probably there were more than 500. 500 were killed. And yet, yet more reversals come. And they're getting bigger in scope and scale. And this, perhaps, is the ultimate one. We're on the day when they think we're going to crush these people, the reverse happens. Or as the NIV says, the tables were turned. And there is a wonderful reversal. I was on the wrestling team when I was a young guy, and more than half the time, if you don't know, people who are wrestling don't win by pinning their opponent. It usually comes down to points. If you have people who are even a little bit evenly matched, and the point system is fairly simple. The main points are there's two points for a takedown, one point for an escape, and two points for a reversal. If you're on the bottom and you're almost pinned and you turn it around and now you're on top of the guy and you're trying to pin him, you get two points. And that's the same as a takedown. And I always thought that was stupid and unfair because ultimately you have both escaped and turned the tables on him. And so you should have kind of the escape plus the take. You should have three points for the reversal. And I especially think that when I read a text like this, they could have just gotten away. They could have just somehow said, you know what, never mind. We're not going to go through with this. I found a loophole in the, in the fine print of the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it says that I can cancel this edict. Because Haman was put to death, it means that his decrees are put to death. They could have done something creative. Instead, God makes this great reversal, the high climax of the book of Esther, and shows just how mighty he is to save his people and to glorify his own name. In Daniel, the enemies of God's people are eaten by their own lions. In Esther, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is hung on his own gallows. And here, the enemies of God's people are defeated and pushed back. Enemies that already had a 70-day head start here. Enemies that already had a great numerical advantage. They were ready. They undoubtedly were drawing up plans long before Mordecai came to power. And still, they were not victorious. And we see a, another reversal here that I think is easy to, to miss that Haman's big day, which, by the way, is the name of the screenplay that I'm working on about Esther. <laughs> Haman's big day that he chose by casting the poor, the, the lots, in, in this magical ritual to consult the gods. Haman's special, special day becomes Mordecai's day. Becomes the Jews' day. You see, it's still the day that was chosen by Lot that this all goes down. They don't get to pick a new day. It wouldn't work. It's got to it's be concurrent and yet, now that day itself is reclaimed. 
and, and given new meaning. And instead of being the shame and destruction of the Jews, it is the glory of their God. And when you think about the, the wickedness involved in saying, I'm going to destroy a people, but to find out when it's going to happen, I'm going to consult idols and false gods, compounding sin with sin. It is amazing that God could somehow redeem this and turn it into a holiday, a holy holiday among his people that is still uh, today amongst the Jewish people, happily and joyfully celebrated. And I was in the, the mall yesterday. Calvin was at a birthday party at the place where it's just all trampolines. And I was sitting in the, the old guy chairs where when I was a kid, the old guys would, would smoke pipes, but now you just sit there. And, and I look over and next to me was a table with a woman doing tarot card readings. And I was reading over this text a few more times thinking, wow, how far we haven't come. Still using lots and cards and nonsense to consult the spirits when the God of the universe has revealed himself to us. You see, what they don't know, what, what he did not know, Haman did not know, is that while the lot is cast into the lap, according to King Solomon, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of Proverbs, it's every decision is from the Lord. Even this day was picked by God himself, not by Haman and not by his heathen gods. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. God had promised in the Abrahamic covenant, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And here we see that happening. He is still faithful to them. In, in verse 3, we, we see that the fear of the people has come upon all of them. The officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So the fear of the Jews had fallen on the populace at large. The fear of Mordecai, who's risen to power, has fallen on all of the other leaders, and all of them tend to support now Israel, or at least the Jewish remnant within Persia. In verse 4, we see that every government official seems to stand with Queen Esther's people. God's sovereignty is not limited to those who acknowledge God's kingship. You might say, I don't even believe in God. Okay, he's still sovereign. He's still at work. He's still doing things that affect you and even working in and through your life much of the time. I think it's another great kind of climactic reversal when Haman's ten sons are amongst those who die. It seems that unable to strike out against Esther or Mordecai, they see this day as the long-awaited, misguided opportunity to get some, some payback and avenge their father's death, or at least honor his memory by killing the innocent people he wanted killed. Guys, dad would want us to do this, right? Well, it doesn't quite work out, and they are the ones who uh, meet their death that day. If you go back to 5.11, look at as, as Haman is boasting and bragging and, and vaulting himself up and trying to make himself seem almost superhuman or godlike. What does he say? Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then we watch in reverse order every one of those things taken away from him and given to God's people until even his sons are taken 
Even his line is snuffed out. The line of King Agag of the Amalekites is now ended once and for all. And if you're a little confused by that statement, maybe you, you've forgotten that earlier in this book we saw that even though this is a diaspora and exile era event, it's a continuation of a very ancient, even to them, long-standing feud. They, they have unfinished business with this guy and his ancestors. The military aspect of this entire thing here is described in terms of Israel's conquest of the Amalekites, which began literally a thousand years earlier. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but now at the end of the book, we need to go back and revisit this story. It began immediately after they left Egypt. We read in Exodus 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, and I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is then reiterated near the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, 19. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all the enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Spoiler alert, they forget. 1 Samuel 15, we see the inciting incident that's behind all of this. This feud between Mordecai and Haman. The heading in uh, my ESV Bible is the Lord rejects Saul. This was also the climax of the story of King Saul coming to power and then losing that power, losing God's anointing, losing the spirit. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. This is 1 Samuel 15. Beginning with verse 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Teleim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. I'll skip a bit. They win the battle. But what happens? Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. They said, we're going to give God stuff that we don't want and we are going to keep for ourselves the spoil that is good. And we're going to let this king live because now I've got a king who owes me a favor and will come running whenever I call and bow down and call me great. Super classic Haman move. Now take it down 500 years to the book of Esther. And we find out Mordecai is a son of Kish, just like Saul. Saul's father was Kish. And we find out that Haman is an Agagite, a descendant of Agag. And we have almost a do-over an opportunity many generations later for justice to come and make this right. Of course, Samuel himself put King Agag to death, but still he had children, still his line was not snuffed out, and still they had forgotten to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, which is very much an Old Testament category. If we look, they were allowed, the Jews, by that second edict to take spoil. 
The first one said, kill, annihilate, and destroy the Jews and take their spoil. So the second one, in reversing it, said they can defend themselves and kill and annihilate anyone who attacks them and take that spoil. And yet they don't. They don't do it. They keep their hands off of the plunder. This is repeated two more times in the next passage. This is very significant. Why? Because the big sin that Saul committed that led to his being removed from the throne was that he had taken plunder. He had taken spoil. And now they do not touch it. And they make it right. This calls to mind very much what Jesus does when he goes out into the wilderness. You remember how when he was tempted, Adam fell, like right away. Oh, that's good? Okay, take a bite. Jesus goes out, the greater Adam, the second Adam, and he does not fall. It's in opposite situations, too. Right? The first Adam, he's happy, he's full, he has everything he wants, he's with his lovely wife, they're all naked. It's like a very good day, and still he falls. Jesus is hungry, he hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's alone, he's not in a beautiful garden, he's in the Midbar, the wasteland, the wilderness, and still he stands. He does what we could not. Why is he out there for 40 days? Why is Lent 40 days long? Because it answers to the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. When they wandered around and they complained and they, they turned against their, their leaders and their God and they grumbled, Jesus did none of that. He stood firm under temptation. And we see here the application that we can turn to a better Adam, Jesus Christ, and have victory in him. I think there are a few application points that we might consider, especially as we are preparing to enter into Lent from a text like this, where many people are put to death and fighting in the streets, and it seems like it's so far removed from our uh, own little sphere. I want to talk about three things mainly. First of all, that God, in helping his people, first and foremost, provides them with a heart of unity. There's unity amongst them. When we as the church today look around and say, wow, there's an awful lot of enemies of the church, spiritual enemies and maybe even straightforward visible enemies gathering around us. It's more hostile out there toward the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day. We have to then draw together in unity if we're going to have any hope at all. Can you imagine some people amongst the, the Persian Jews on the 13th of Adar saying, listen, while we're getting things done, I refuse to fight until we, we hash out exactly how much each person is supposed to send to Jerusalem to help with that effort to rebuild the wall and eventually rebuild the city itself. Until we do that, I'm out. They can come and kill us all. I don't care. No, they would put aside these smaller issues, these differences, these disagreements, because there is something pressing at their gates. There are people who are seeking their destruction. And God has opened to them an opportunity to survive and thrive and have a great reversal. The rest of this chapter is going to show Esther asking for yet another day to keep on fighting. She, she says, well, let's, let's keep this going one more day, my king. She's just always asking for one more thing. And we have to remember as we read these texts that our kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical one, not a nationalistic one, not a geopolitical kingdom. That our kingdom and our weapons are not worldly. As we saw when we studied through Ephesians just recently, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of this present darkness. 
Our weapons are not physical. They are not political. That we are going to distract and divide ourselves and be conquered if we divide ourselves along these lines. I think in the past five years, I've seen the church bifurcate itself more than I ever have, at least in my whole lifetime, perhaps before my time it was worse. But just dividing along political lines to the point where people cannot even find common ground at the cross of Jesus Christ. And this happens by sort of importing all sorts of extra issues and back-ending them into the gospel, making them part of the gospel message rather than an addendum to it, rather than something that naturally flows out of it. And I'm talking right, left, and every other political orientation is always trying to bloat the gospel with other concerns, other issues, other work, other warnings, some of it very important. But if it's not repentance and forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name, it's not the gospel. And to force it into the message that we all have to hold to tightly in order to be one body in Jesus Christ, we are doing violence to the gospel, sabotaging it, trying to force our wine into the wineskins that are already full with the blood of Christ, our Savior, and his grace for sinners. As our, our culture becomes more and more all or nothing, we come to the point where we have to agree on everything or we're on opposite sides of this thing and I'm going to go on social media and flame you and destroy you. We cannot link arms on some things. Well, as Christians, we have to recognize that there is one place where we come together at the the altar, where there is a cross, where we all on our knees with nothing in our hands, no affiliations and no good works received salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. That's called unity. And I think if the church doesn't rediscover this in the West and soon we are going to see even more shrinking and falling away. And notice that that unity here is only activated as they gather. right? They could acknowledge it. There was an edict that gave them the right. In fact, if you read it carefully, the right that they're given is to be assembled together in order to defend themselves. But they still have to, like, do it, to assemble together, to come together. Unity can't be... Uh, maintained without actually gathering. I think we're going to also see the the slow uh, leak and the slow chipping away of unity the more we de-emphasize the gathering together of the local church. Unity is activated as people come together in the name of Jesus to worship Him and do the work of the kingdom. And I, I think we need also then, secondarily, to remember that we have full victory in Christ Jesus. We have the victory already. The victory has been given to us. It was won on Calvary. It was won in the empty tomb. The church's triumph is only and exclusively in Christ. Again, not in any of these other tangential things, any of these other categories, any of these things that divide us. This is the gospel, and we tend to forget it, which is why you need to gather and hear it again every week. And so do I. The fact is that when the bottom of Jesus' foot hit the floor of that rock-hewn tomb, we had full victory. When he stood up, everything changed. Now alive again, never to die. As sin had entered the world through one man and through sin, death, now through one man, life has entered the world. Forgiveness of sins has come into the world. Not just passing over them, not just kicking the can down the road, but truly doing away with our sins, washing us clean. 
They were not conquered on that day. They were the conquerors. And we read the same thing about ourselves in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Earlier in our study of the Baptist Catechism, the question came up, question 25, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. Notice what he does first before he fights his and our enemies. He subdues us because we were his enemies. Because God does not desire to see the death of the wicked, but that they repent and live. Ultimately, this, I think, is what I take away from this text. You know, you, you read a biography that might be called the life and death of so-and-so, but if we're talking about a believer in Jesus, it ought to say the death and life. Because death comes first, before true life. Death with Christ. Death to self. Death to sin. And every Sunday gathering together with the saints, coming to the Lord's table, opening his word is a reminder of this, this resurrection and a chance to again be forgiven in the company of the saints to be reminded that we together are on this journey, being washed clean, confessing our sins and being cleansed of unrighteousness, sanctified and brought into his presence. We see this in a mystery, I think, in Esther. Because first comes a decree of death. You will all be wiped out and it's hanging over their heads and it hangs there for quite a while. Then comes the decree of life. The same thing happens in the Old Testament. The, the decree of death is in the covenant of works. In the, in the Garden of Eden, yeah, you, you're all right. As long as you don't mess up at all, you'll be fine. Hangs over their head and as soon as they sin, they are kicked out of the garden cut off from the tree of life. But then comes the covenant of grace. Then comes the promise in Genesis 3.15. Then comes the Messiah to take our sins from us and make us new. Romans 6.4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were talking about baptism this morning in Sunday school. Death and life. Right? We, we go under the water, death with him, we come up. Resurrection, being raised to new life. And then 40 days later, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, ruling now at the Father's side. Don't believe any preacher on TV who tries to relegate the reign of Christ to some future age. Christ is reigning now. We have complete victory in him. And when you think about the death and then the life, the first edict, and then the second. And you just take a moment to contemplate the, the fear, the anxiety, the hopelessness that would have come with that first decree. We are doomed. The clock is ticking down and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. How spiritually numb and exhausted they would be. And then here comes that second decree. And with it, energy, hope, zeal, celebration, gathering together and fighting their enemies and having victory. There is for us, I think, a picture of the church in these things. 
Like the Jews in Susa, this reversal of status was based on their relationship to the king. All of a sudden, there is a great dread of the Jews amongst the, the populace at large. What had changed? If you were the average Jewish person living in the Persian Empire, you were probably living in the same house you were before when everyone thought you were just to be plundered and and mocked and laughed at, and there's no problem at all. You're probably doing the same job. You were wearing the same clothes, and yet suddenly you had a reversal of status. Why? Because of your relationship with the king. The same thing is true of us. But they did not use this change in status for their own gain. While they were allowed to take the plunder, they did not take advantage of that. Rather, they simply worked toward their their life and the glory of their God. In verse 2, we see God's people using this new status and new power to do God's will. They joined together in order to fight the good fight and put to death their enemies. And the same thing happens every week in the church. Remember, we struggle not against flesh and blood. Our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Your enemies, most of them probably are right there with you right now in your carnal nature, your idolatry, your lust, your your selfishness, your, your materialism, and, and your love of the praise of men, whatever it is. We are putting these things to death. That is the command. And, and I think about how we read these Old Testament passages where everyone is to be put to death as they go through the conquest, and, and we go, let's grapple with this a while. What are the ethical ramifications? Is God allowed to do that? And we never stop to say, what does this mean to us today? where we are called to put to death all within us that is, that is born of the sin nature. All of it. Destroy it. We're not told to, to manage our sin, but to mortify it. Kill it. And yet we, call, we pull the King Saul. I killed the things that I don't like. You know what I gave up for Lent? Broccoli. You don't have to give something up for Lent, but if you're going to, don't make it something that you hate to begin with. And certainly don't make it something that's going to just benefit you. We all know Sean's story. Gave up pop, just drank water one year for Lent. Lost a bunch of weight. Next year said, I'm going to do it again and lose some more weight. Didn't have any pop. Didn't enjoy it at all. Didn't lose any weight. He was trying to take the plunder the second year. And it didn't work out. We we want to join together to encourage one another in fighting the good fight. In putting to death all in us that is rooted in the old Adam, not leaving alive. You know what, what Samuel says, what is this that I hear? The bleeding of, of animals, bleating, nah, nah. I hear that. Why do I hear that? You were supposed to put all of this to death as part of the ban, dedicated to God and destruction. And yet if the Spirit comes through our hearts, I'm sure the, the, the sound of bleating is everywhere. What do I hear? Why is there still some of these, these things that ought to have been long ago put to death? Well, as we enter into a holy Lent, let us double down on this holy war that is sanctification and put to death anything in us that is not rooted in who Jesus would have us be. And recognize that any success we have as Christians comes because God has gone before us, just as it did in the book of Esther, and we are simply walking into the land and possessing it. The fear of God was there for them. And the fear of God can be good, the reverential fear is the beginning of wisdom, or in this case it was dread, the dread of God. Acts 17.6, we read the same thing continues into the New Testament. 
While the church is certainly not taking up arms and destroying anyone, still we read as they, they grab Jason and drag him up before the crowd and there's people and mobbed and everybody going crazy. They say these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. The fear of God comes upon the people when God's people put their hearts and their minds and their hands to the work. In verse 5, we read then, out of this, it's called a vav consecutive in the Hebrew. It means that it's a sequence that we're being given. That the fear of God comes from Mordecai being lifted up, coming to greater power and prominence. And as a result, the people are filled with a holy zeal to gather together and defend themselves. We see that, that when there is zeal amongst God's people, it spreads, it's contagious. That when there is a passion to serve him and to put to death the deeds of the flesh and make no provision for them at all. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It spreads. It's contagious. And this doesn't happen primarily through those who would position themselves as, as higher and higher and more significant and more influential than others. Holding a, you know, uh, here, look at my videos, follow me, this is, this is all about me. That's a Haman move. Rather, this happens through the humble service in the local church as people together are serving the king in real life. Mordecai was the opposite of Haman. Haman did nothing but trumpet his own greatness. Mordecai was humble and grounded and faithful to the end. And after being paraded out the, around the city and put on a, a horse that the king had ridden and being given these royal robes the king had worn when it was all done and, and a hundred times his enemy had said, this is what is done for the one whom the king wishes to honor. He said, okay, took off the robes and went back to work. He didn't need to pose or self-promote. If he were alive today, he wouldn't be building his ministry brand on Twitter or Instagram. He'd be too busy actually doing things that matter. Faithfully serving, humbly leading, and he'd be far more influential for it. And when this happens, just look at how David or, or the judges of old, when these people are filled with the zeal of God, it spreads. And I pray that this happens for us as Lent begins on Wednesday. That like we see in the book of Esther chapter 9, in our battle against sin, we would give no quarter and take no plunder. That we would say, I am going to leave no provision for the flesh. I am going to leave no bleating of animals in the midst, the, the, the choice plunder, and simply give to God those things that I don't value. I am going to find that, that which God would have me turn over to him and mercilessly take it and put it to death. My pet sins, my besetting sins, my, my patterns of thought, my patterns of action that would bring shame upon the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to do away with them. This will be the year that I do away with them. And just as God's people in Persia had to wait for the 12th month to come, even after their status and standing had changed, so we patiently wait for the second coming of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom. We heard from Revelation 19 in the first scripture reading. And it's about the buildup toward what will be called by many the Battle of Armageddon, right? The apocalypse, the big battle at the end. But then look at what happens in the actual battle. Chapter 20, verse 7, Revelation. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. 
And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Sounds an awful lot like the build-up to Esther, doesn't it? But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's the end of the battle. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented there night and day forever. According to the Bible, Armageddon will be over practically before it begins. But as we wait, there is cause to rejoice, just as there was in Esther chapter 8, that we are indeed bought by the blood. There is a new edict, an edict of life supplanting the edict of death, and yet there still is much to do, a battle to fight, and enemies to be destroyed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a passage that, while it is uncomfortable for us in the current age to think about that kind of fighting and that kind of divine mandate for destroying one's enemies, Lord, we also look to it as a challenge to our spiritual lives where we may have been content simply to put to death the feeble and lame among the cattle like King Saul and where we might be content to let this or that sin live on and think we'll just manage it, we'll take care of that, we'll keep it aside for another day. Lord, may we put to death these things which are an affront to you. We pray that as we enter into Lent on Wednesday, you will give us hearts uh, that are intolerant of sin in ourselves. Hearts that will not suffer the presence of sin because we bring these hearts into your presence. And Lord, we know that we cannot bring sin into your presence. And so we pray that we would root these things out. We would make no provision for the flesh. And we would turn to you in the same way that these Jews did in Persia. We would gather together and encourage one another to fight the good fight this Lent. In your holy name we pray. Amen.